Jesus sees unbelief as perversity. These afflictions that come upon him, these seizures, it throws him down. It throws him down. That's the same word that Mark used in chapter 3 to describe the the old wineskins with the new wine put in them. And you remember what happens to the old wineskins? They burst asunder. So literally, it bursts him. It throws him down. By that, we see that this is not in the... the, uh, In the view of Scripture, in the view of the Father, this is not just the the boy being overcome by the seizures and falling. Instead, it's the demon taking the boy and throwing him down. You get the, the image here, the picture of this demon bullying the boy, shoving him down, throwing him down to the ground, and he becomes rigid. That's the same word that Mark used there in chapter 3. He uses it again in chapter 4. He uses it to describe the man with the withered hand, the hand that was withered, shriveled up, becomes rigid. He uses it again in chapter 4 to describe the plant that springs forth from the rocky soil and then it quickly dies and withers or becomes rigid. So he becomes fixed. He becomes rigid. So he says, I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Now, the tragedy of that, we might say, well, I mean, who can blame these disciples? They're just humans. They're just people. And they're going up against these supernatural demons. I mean, what could be expected of them? Until we remind ourselves, did not Jesus give these men the authority to do just that? We are reminded from chapter 6 that Jesus specifically gave them the authority to cast these demons out. And furthermore, not only were they given the authority, Jesus never took it back. And not only has He not taken it back, we also are told that they were successful in casting out these demons. From chapter 6 and verse 13, they cast out many demons. So having previously been able to cast demons out, they find themselves at this point unable to cast out this demon. So their inability to cast out this particular demon now has had a great detrimental effect upon the father's faith. We'll see that as the story plays out. The father is coming to Jesus with a faith in Jesus that we'll explore in just a moment. But that faith that the father comes with has been greatly shaken by the fact that these disciples were unable to help his boy. So as the father is describing to Jesus the symptoms of this boy, what Mark wants us to do, he wants us to have our hearts just grasped by the plight of this boy and the father. Because, you know, often when we read Scripture, our natural reaction to things like this is just to be cold and distant. How many times have you read this story before and thought, oh, another exorcism story. Here's a boy, poor boy, oppressed by this demon, possessed by the demon. Jesus casts him out. Yea, Jesus, go Jesus. And we just sort of read that with sort of a distance, sort of a coldness in our heart. But Mark wants us to connect with the Father. He wants us to hear in this Father's experience the experience of a horrible life, of a wicked, vile, evil spirit from hell who has entered into His only child and is inflicting upon His only child 
such a life of horror, such a life of pain, such a life of of anxiety. Who knows when the next seizure attack is going to come? A little bit later, we were going to we'll learn some more about this as the father will tell us that the demon often tries to kill the boy by throwing him into a fire or throwing him into water. And so once again, the boy isn't overcome with a seizure and falls into a fire or falls into a body of water. We don't know what this exactly looks like, but perhaps if we were watching this to happen, we might think, did the boy just go and jump into the river? Did the boy just go and run over and jump into that fire? Perhaps that's how the father knows the demon is taking my boy and he's throwing him into this fire. This demon is seeking to do precisely what Jesus said the demon's father does, which is he came to kill, destroy, and to steal. And so that's precisely what the demon is doing. He's seeking to kill him. He's seeking to destroy him. That's what the father says. He throws him into the fire. He throws him into the water to try to destroy him. And he's stolen. We'll find out his voice, his ability to speak. A little bit later, Jesus will refer to the demon. He will talk to the demon and say, you deaf and mute spirit. So apparently the demon has stolen from the boy, not only his ability to speak, but his ability to hear. So on top of all of this, the boy lives in a silent world unable to communicate anything in any real degree to anyone around him, living in this silent hell of one person, being attacked, being inhibited, being the host for evil living directly in him that is seeking to hurt him as much as it can and seeking to destroy him. How many times have perhaps the father has to have said to pull the boy out of the fire and and put the fire out, roll the boy on the ground and then put salve on the burn wounds? Or how many times has the father or perhaps the mother or perhaps some friends had to go in and pull the boy out of the water as he was not only in the water, but had gone under and wasn't coming up as though something was holding him down on the bottom? How many times has that happened? And this is the description of a life of absolute misery in hell. God wants us to connect. He wants us to have empathy with this man and with this boy and with their struggle. So verse 19, verse 18, they were not able. Verse 19, and he answered them, Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? So Jesus utters this groan from from his spirit, this groan from his soul. Oh, faithless generation. The word in the Greek for faith is pistis. And so this is the word apistis. Ah, pistis. Ah, without faith, no faith. Faithless ones. Oh, faithless ones. How long am I to bear with you? How long am I to be with you? So Jesus is not lamenting here the lack of power on the part of his disciples. He's lamenting the lack of faith. He's lamenting the absence of faith. We should begin contrasting this with Nazareth. Comparing and contrasting this with what happened at Nazareth. Remember Nazareth where they refused to believe. And because of their refusal to believe, it was not in the will of the Father for Jesus to do any mighty works there, and so He did none. 
And so this in comparison is something like Nazareth where Jesus just says, oh, the faithlessness. Oh, how long the heart of the struggle. You should begin seeing right now. The heart of the struggle is not a struggle against the demonic. Throughout the passage, the demonic is pictured as utterly powerless against Jesus. Jesus effortlessly casts out the demon. Instead, this is not a struggle against the demonic. This is a struggle against unbelief. And this is what this passage is all about, the struggle against unbelief. So Jesus says, oh, this faithful, gener- faithless generation, how long am I to be here? How long am I to bear with you? What is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus just saying, I'm just so sick of all these people. When, and Father, when can I be done with these people down here and get back up there with the angels? What is Jesus saying? What Jesus is communicating to us is a longing, a deep longing in His Spirit to be back in a context, in a place, or to be in a time in which unbelief is done. Unbelief among God's people is done because what he's experiencing here, he is not lamenting the unbelief of the curious crowds or the scribes. He's lamenting the unbelief of his people, his disciples, and this father, whom we will see is one of his sheep. He's lamenting the fact that their hearts are a mixture of belief and unbelief. And he's saying, oh, Father, when will this mixture of belief and unbelief be over? How long must I bear with this context, with this life of where your people have hearts that are double minded, have hearts that are a mixture of faith and unfaith, of belief and disbelief? Father, this is a burden for me to bear. You see, Jesus sees unbelief as a burden. Jesus sees unbelief as something wicked and perverse. That's what we read in Matthew's account in Matthew 17, where Jesus says, oh, faithless and twisted, or we could say perverse generation. You see, Jesus sees unbelief as perversity. And that is quite the opposite of what we see it today, isn't it? Our modern view of unbelief, we tend to look upon unbelief as well. This person made a choice not to believe or this this person just is not a believing person and that's that's their right, that's their choice. Jesus sees it as pure wickedness, as pure perversity. In the view of Jesus, to disbelieve that which is most believable or to distrust that who is most trustable. That's perversity. In Jesus' view, it is irrational not to believe. And haven't we just flipped that on its head today? Don't we as moderns, don't we like to say, oh, faith is the irrational thing. To believe in something you've never seen, that's irrational. In Jesus' view, it's irrational to disbelieve. It's illogical to not trust the being who is most trustworthy in all the universe. The one being who is perfectly trustable. To not trust that one being, in Jesus' view, is perverse and wicked. To live in a world in which all around us is evidence of a creator God. We say this 
quite frequently, and we're right to say this, that we can't prove the existence of God. God didn't intend it that way. He didn't create a world in which evidence for His, for his existence is this tangible thing that can be offered. He didn't want that. But nevertheless, to live in a world in which we have these bodies that are just incredible creations that are capable of, of feeling and hearing and seeing, capable of thinking higher thoughts, capable of reasoning, self-aware of ourself and others, capable of knowing great realities of the world around us. And then we look at this world and we see the creation and how you know, all you have to do is just watch some of the, of the nature documentaries, documentaries to be just amazed at the complexity of the creation or the scale of the universe, the hundreds of billions of, of light years that are the, the diameter of the universe supposedly, or the hundreds of billions of stars, or your body's ability to heal itself or reproduce itself, all of those things would lend the rational person to say it is irrational to disbelieve in a higher being. It is illogical to distrust the most trustworthy being. It is wicked and perverse to disbelieve that which is most trustable and most believable. So, Jesus says, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So the Father said earlier, I brought him to you. You weren't here. You weren't available. Jesus now says, bring him to me. And in bring bring him to me, those words, bring him to me, we see absolute certainty. There is not a shred of doubt that this boy, when he is brought to Jesus, this will be nothing that Jesus will encounter that in any way presents a problem to him. The healing of the boy is absolutely certain when they bring him to Jesus. Now verse 20, and so they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. So we see here that the initial result for the boy is that things don't get better. Things get a whole lot worse, don't they? In fact, we're going to see a little bit later in the next verse or two that things are going to get much worse for the boy. We'll explore that in just a moment. But the initial reaction for the boy is that things don't just get immediately better. They get a whole lot worse. The boy here is a picture for us of the process of conversion. The boy is possessed of evil. He is a slave to evil. And he encounters Jesus and the evil is driven from him. And so he he is then a picture of new life in Christ. But this new life in Christ begins not on this happy-go-lucky, joyful sort of uh, kick where he just goes skipping about. He has the experience of the worst seizure yet, the worst attack of the demonic yet. And all of this comes as this demon sees him, when the Spirit saw him. So here we're reminded of a theme that I found to be an unbreakable theme. I know of no instance in Scripture in which this theme is not held up. And that's the theme that when the demonic comes into the proximity of the Christ, when the demonic comes into his proximity, their attacks accentuate. They ramp up. So think with me, uh, for example, the demoniac who was in the synagogue in chapter 1. This demoniac had been attending the synagogue probably for years and nobody really knew anything. Nobody suspected anything. Oh yeah, he was a little weird. He was a little off. Some of his jokes were kind of off color, but I mean, they never really suspected he was demon-possessed 
until the Christ comes for one of the services. And Jesus teaches from the Scriptures, and then is when the demon makes the man stand up and uses the man's voice to say, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Or think of, for example, the demon known as Legion. As Jesus approaches, it's then that the demon unleashes his most ferocious attack. All of this points us to Revelation 12.12. In Revelation 12.12, we're told, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So that's pointing us to the end of the age in which Satan has this awareness that his time is short and he unleashes the fiercest wrath that he has. Likewise, the boy, the demon that's possessing the boy, sees Jesus, knows that his time is short, and he unleashes upon the boy his fiercest attack yet. He convulses him, he falls down, and we're going to see in just a moment, it's as though he's dead. So all of that should be, I think, maybe a little bit of a comfort to us. We, of course, do not know the timing of the Lord. We do not know His return. His return is imminent. But we do know that the Scriptures teach us that as the time of Christ draws near, the demons and Satan, their anger and their fury will grow to a fever pitch. Now, verse 21, And Jesus asked His Father, How long has this been happening to Him? And He said, From childhood. From childhood. In my mind, I've got this picture. Most of us in the room are parents, and so you can, maybe if you've got older children or adult children, maybe you can think back to those earlier days. In my mind, I have, I have this picture of those days, you know, when they're just learning to walk. And they're just sort of teetering around and pulling up and just starting to walk. And here's this little boy. Just He's only been walking a week. And then all of a sudden, he's walking across the room, and he falls. And at first, they think he maybe just tripped or he's just, just getting his legs under him. But then they look and he's convulsing and he's foaming and his teeth, his mouth is clenched shut and his eyes are rolled back in his head and he's shaking, he's trembling. And from that point, this demon has attacked the boy and attacked him and attacked him and attacked him. The word that Mark uses often gives us the sense that this is something that happens with regularity from childhood. But notice Jesus' question. How long? I'm not aware of another instance in which Jesus needs background information. And of course, Jesus doesn't need background information. The Son of God knows exactly how long this demon has attacked the boy. Furthermore, Jesus doesn't need that information in order to cast the demon out. Why do you think Jesus asks... I think for the same reason we mentioned earlier. Jesus wants those watching to be drawn into this saga, to be drawn into this horrid existence that is the father's and the mother's and the boy's existence by saying, how long? And having the people around him here from childhood. Now, what's going on with the boy right now? Did you notice? The boy is convulsing. And Jesus is asking the father about his medical history. Isn't that odd? Isn't that odd that Jesus is conversing with the father while the boy is still writhing on the ground? So imagine those who are watching. There's this boy, maybe a teenage boy, maybe older teen boy, writhing on the ground. 
And they hear, the bystanders hear the father say, from childhood, this has gone on now, a decade and a half. But if you can do anything, 